Physio Spill podcast. We are back, and what an amazing guest we have in Dr. Simon Perrett, St. Helens doctor and CMO for the Rugby League World Cup. Simon talks us through his journey to becoming a GP, which includes operating on large animals, his home gym, and the reasons behind an alarm every single day at 4.05. So without further ado, after three or four months out, let's get started. I'm extremely excited and privileged to have uh, Simon Perrett, the doc, on the podcast this week. Um, what can I say? I've worked with, with Cy for probably on and off the best part of 20 years. Um, he's, a, he's an amazing uh, doctor. He, he's a fantastic mentor and help for me in particular and for other physiotherapy staff members and doctors at the club. He's also a, a champion bloke and, and, and a great man uh, when you look at um, how he lives his life and, and what he does and, and how committed he is to, to multiple facets in his life, including his family and his career. So, uh, just a brief intro in, in, in what the doc does currently. Uh, our doc is, is pre predominantly and provisionally a, a general practitioner, but he's also the chair of the clinical advisory group for the RFL, Rugby Football League. Um, he's a St. Helens Club doctor and he's the chief medical officer of the Ru Rugby World Cup that's going to be played this year. So without further ado, doc, if you give us a, a, a brief history, because I've given you probably the, the longest history in the world, <laughs> On, on, on yourself, that'd be brilliant. Uh, thanks, Millsy. Um, it's really good to be here. Um, I've been a, a little bit nerve, uh, nervous coming on, but I was uh, assured by you both that I would be uh, well looked after. Uh, I don't doubt, I doubt that's going to be the case. Um, yep, so I've been involved in rugby league now, for, as Millsy says, for 20 years, really. Um, I've been very, very fortunate during that time uh, to be involved with a, a world-class team. Um, and I've probably experienced many of the highs and occasionally some of the lows that other people in sport, or indeed these sport, in, in, in rugby league, will not have the the, uh, the fortune to experience. So I've been very, very fortunate. I'm very, um, yeah, very pleased and, uh, pleased and content with with uh, with my life. It's uh, it's been exciting. Um, as you say, I'm a, I'm a GP by trade. I've not always been the case. I mean, no doubt we can sort of touch on the an interesting career path uh, as we go on. Um, so full-time GP, um, increasingly full-time rugby medic as well. It's certainly changed over the years. <clears throat> um, back in the early noughties when I started, a lot more involved these days, and then that's true for all medics and physios. Uh, we all do infinitely more than we ever used to do. Um, yeah, so it's been a really fantastic two decades of my, of my life, my career. So just, just on, like, if we, if we go way back, Doc, way back to your childhood, growing up, um, just tell us, like, so where you're from originally, uh, your family as you were growing up, and, and what kind of unit you had at that time. Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm the eldest of, of four kids. Um, I grew up in, in rural Cheshire um, in a little farming village called Malpas. Um and, uh, yeah, very happy family unit. Um, my father was a local vet, <clears throat> and for many years, um, that was what I wanted to be. Uh, but eventually, uh, Dad convinced me that um, large animal veterinary medicine 
which is what he was involved with, cattle, cattle uh, medicine really, um, was on its way out. The James Herrier way of life was no more. And really sort of hope I should do a job with no heavy lifting and indoors if, prefer if <laughs> my preference. And so he kind of taught me out of it. But <clears throat> certainly I cut my medical teeth um, helping a lot with him. Um, as a gangly youth, I used to have very long arms and still do. <laughs> and so as the perfect uh, assistant um, to help a, a large, large cattle bet uh, in doing some of the, uh, uh, the things that he used to get involved with. Um, oh, I'm sorry, just just to interrupt you. What kind of things would you be involved with? Can you give us a, a, a bit so, of an anecdotal well, story on that? Yes, yeah, so I shall tell you my first ever surgical experience. So um, you may or may not know, and I'm not quite sure I've got the number right, but I think cows have four stomachs. Um, this is to help with uh, with rumination. So when you eat grass, you need more than one stomach to be able to digest it. Now, the problem with that is they have a habit of getting twisted around themselves and, uh, and jumbled up inside. Now, that obviously makes you quite unwell as a cow. And so what my dad used to ask me to assist with, <clears throat> I think I did this on, on, on a few occasions, was to help them twist the cow's stomach. Now, the way you do that, you'll appreciate a cow is a pretty big beast. The way you do that is you make an incision on one side of the cow. You find where the twisted stomach is. Inside of that, you then attach a bull ring to that stomach, uh, sort of suture it in. You then make an incision on the other side of the cow. And the person with the longest arms grabs hold of the bull ring, pushes that bull ring down one side of the abdomen. And if they're lucky, they can just about reach the fingertips of the guy on the other side who's got his hand uh, shoulder deep in the other side of the cow. He then grabs the bull ring and pulls that stomach up the other side. And because I had the longest arms out of all us kids, I think I was asked to do that more, <laughs> more than anybody else. Um, yeah, so that's my first surgical experience. And, and, and it did impress me. And I don't know why the dad took me because I had long arms, because I was yeah, generally quite interested in doing that type of thing. Um, and so that was, that was my first sort of taste of, uh, of medicine, really. Doc, you've, you've impressed me by the detail that you can remember. From can we just go? How how old were you at that time? Well, uh, do you know what? I know what about that's the a great time, question. But... I suspect at most in my early early teens, I would guess maybe 12, 13. Um, I'd, I'd grown up on farms at that age. All my all of my sort of friends as a, as, a, as a kid were all farmers' sons, and so I sort of grew up around farms and, and mucking around on farms since day one really um and so it's very sort of second nature and it was very um <clears throat> uh dad i'm sure he won't mind me saying always sort of believed in nature red in tooth and claw um so we were very matter of fact about uh, <laughs> life and death and everything that goes along with it um so it, it, it didn't never really struck me as odd i've obviously told that tale once or twice to people who've uh, gone very pale <laughs> at the very thought of it. But it was kind of a normal thing. We used to sort of go to carvings a lot, um, and, and sort of calf cows and occasionally lamb sheep. Um, yeah, so it was just a normal part of our, our life, really. So it was just something that you just got completely used to and something that you were all fair with from a very young age. Yeah, but blase, really, the no fair, really. 
uh, it just didn't appear to be abnormal. Whereas I think <laughs> I think most people don't have that uh, that kind of upbringing. <clears throat> When you grow up in Rochdale, there's a bit of a difference between you know <laughs> carving a cow and you know walking down the street and worried about getting mugged. I think that's the <laughs> um, just just going into sort of like your then pathway from that that early experience of surgery and that early exposure from from the influence of your dad to eventually making your decision to go into to uh, a medical career. What was your why? What was the inspiration for you? Obviously, you've had that early exposure, but what made that pathway more um, appropriate and, and sensible for you than, than anything else? So <clears throat> it's interesting. I, I remember vividly um, sitting down in college in one day and, 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 and having to put down my sort of three, um, yeah, sort of three sort of career choices. I was always very science-based. It just kind of made sense to me. I, um, I enjoyed that sort of uh, uh, that sort of logical way of thinking. And so it was always going to be a science-based career, really. Um, I think I had down something like uh, medicine, veterinary medicine, or research scientist. Um, <clears throat> and I say that did uh, did put me off veterinary medicine. And to be fair to him, I think he was absolutely right at the time. I think veterinary medicine has changed. Um, and he certainly didn't enjoy uh, small animal work, um, and I can, and having been a GP for some time, <clears throat> I can see, I can see the issues he might have had with that. Um, I think his uh, his persona suited speaking to farmers rather than uh, worried uh, ladies with their little pomeranians. Um, <laughs> and it still makes a great deal of sense to me. Um, so yeah, I I I, I come from medicine. Um, Applied for uh, yeah, several medical schools. I was fortunate enough to be uh, selected into one. Interesting rugby aside here, <clears throat> um, I'm involved occasionally now with um, with sort of colleagues who are involved with medical school selection process. And, and like everything else these days, it's a very um, objective thing with people marked on various sort of uh, aspects of their both uh, intellect and, and, and personality. Back in the day when I was applying, what people were interested in was actually much more to do with uh, my rugby uh, than it was <laughs> my academic forte. Um, I remember uh, several of my interviews um, involved uh, people who were asking exactly who I played for, when I played for them, uh, would I be interested in playing for the, the medical school or indeed the university, <laughs> wherever I joined. Um, and, and that seems to perform a much larger part and I suspect anyone will be allowed to get away with these days. <clears throat> um, anyway, plumped for Liverpool, um, which at the time certainly still is, I'm sure, um, one of the top medical schools in the country. Um, and the reason for that was they offered a very uh, traditional medical school course. Um, so very much a sort of a, a science, biochemistry, um, anatomy and everything else for the first couple of years, and then straight into a much more a clinical <clears throat> programme um, and that still happens these days, but it is a slightly different course these days. Um, yeah, and had a, had a wonderful time in Liverpool for, for five years, or six years, actually. I integrated, took a year out in the middle of that medical school course and, uh, and did an extra degree in physiology, um, which, <laughs> believe me, was not necessarily with much to do with my love of physiology, but rather <clears throat> I had the misfortune to... Um, to, to, to rupture my cruciate in my second year uh, at uni. 
and I had aspirations to try and make my way up to sort of British universities level. And it was a vain attempt to add an extra year of university education, uh, which was essentially a rehab year <laughs> for me. Right. So basically what you decided is, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch a little bit on the, the sport influence in your life, but you've had an injury at university and then you thought, do you know what? I'm, I'm pretty good at rugby. I've got a chance of, of, of making some representative honours. So we'll get an extra year out and I'll just do another degree. Oh, let's just throw another degree in there. That was pretty much my thinking, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, in, well, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that uh, uh, it wasn't a particularly successful year academically. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up with a, a, a 2 2 honours degree in, uh, in in physiology. I had the, uh, the, um, the indignity of having to go to a, a viva. And to explain my research projects with a, a, an amazingly clever chap called Ole Peterson, um, who was the professor of physiology at Liverpool. Um, he was the first person to use uh, micro pipettes. So these little pipettes that could actually inject cells. Um, it was one of the first in the world to, to work out how to do that. So an incredibly uh, um, amazing man, really, and world famous. And he just sat there looking at me during the survivor, asking me question after question, which was, I'd say, yeah, not really sure about that. <laughs> no, no, not quite sure about what you mean there either. Um, and, and I got away with a tutu. <clears throat> and so I'm not sure my mum and dad were particularly impressed with the fact that I seem to have uh, <laughs> wasted away uh, an academic year. Um, with that. How much did rugby influence you? going into that period where you were you were studying and, and your life in general? So it was always a massive part of my life. I mean, I, I, so um, I remember vividly, so the sort of primary school, I actually played football. Um, I was the sort of classic centre-back, um, you know, full of physicality, not much technique. Um, at high school, when I, I first picked up a rugby ball, and, you know, the, the, the PE teacher saw me, yeah, you can just run at people as hard as you can and smash them as hard as you can. And I thought, gosh, no, that's the game for me. Now, this, this is, of course, Miss Union, um, which is what was played around our neck of the woods. Um, I was um, larger than the average <laughs> kid in my year. And, and so we used to have these fantastic games at school where um, the P master, um, would, we used to play games against other schools, um, and they used to have a 10-yard rule for me, which was that you give me the ball, I was allowed to run 10 yards, at which point I had to stop and let all the others uh, catch up with me. <laughs> so I sort of skittled these other kids from the other school. Uh, and then I had to pass the ball. I wasn't allowed to run more than 10 yards at a time. Um, just, just for the listeners, Doc, just to describe like your stature, um, you're what, about 6'2"? 6'2", yeah. And, and what, what, what do you weigh, Doc, around about? About 110 kilos at the moment. So about, yeah, just a smidge over 17 stone. And, and, and you're an absolute monster of a man, um, if you don't mind me saying, Doc, in, in, the, in the best possible sense. So just from a <laughs> point of view of clarifying what you were like at that age, were you as, uh, were you as big well, as you were back then as you were now? Probably not, but I was probably more developed. rangy then. But I mean, interesting, I went back a, a couple of years ago and actually looked. So uh, anyway, I went on and played club rugby and, and ended up playing for, uh, playing for the county. So I played for Cheshire Schoolboys. Um, and then played for North of England school boys at under-18s level. Now, under-16s, we went on a tour of Australia, and then we actually got the programme from our, our, our tour party back then. 
and at 16, I was uh, six foot two um, and about 30, a smidge under 14 stone uh, as a 16 year old. So I was a decent size right the way through, um, carrying a little bit more timber these days, um, and certainly not as, uh, as fast as I was then, um, but much the same sort of uh, same sort of shape. Doc, just to ask you on on the on the rugby side of things as well, um, and and looking at your, your career path into into becoming a doctor, and working with Saint Helens, and working within sport, um, I, I when we went down to see a consultant, one of the players at the club, the consultant came back and said to me, the reason why he's extremely interested in continuing working with athletes is he considered himself a, a failed sportsman, and I thought I, I reflected on that and I thought. Do you know, in my own experience, I wasn't that good at playing sport, but I loved it. And now I love being part of that process of being involved with the club. Would, would that ring true? Maybe not failed is, is maybe too strong of a word, but would that ring true in your experience? Yeah, I think it's, you know, for me, I think it's more about the, the appreciation of what these lads are about. Um, and, and certainly we'll, we'll talk a little bit more on the family later on, but an appreciation of what they have to go to to get where they are. But I was, so I was at the age when I was 18 when rugby union had not, not quite turned professional. Um, now, a lot of the lads I played with and against went on to have very successful professional careers. So um, the, 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 the centre who played for Cheshire under-16s um, uh, on their tour of show, it was like called Josh Baxendale, who went on to Captain Sale for, for many, many years. Um, in the north of England team that I played in briefly, the scrum off was Kieran Bracken. Um, I actually got my shot playing for the north of England because a lad who was playing uh, second round, which is what I played at the time, second round number eight, <clears throat> um, dropped out because he was signed for Wigan. That lad was uh, BJ Mallard. So we're all of that sort of vintage. That's I, I, I kind of missed the boat. I like to think that, you know, um, I was certainly good enough to have played at a reasonable and, and I suspect, you know, I would have been one of those academy kids um, who played for sale, who probably don't quite make the grade because they're not quite good enough. I recognise that now, and I'm sort of uh, old enough and ugly enough to, to admit to myself that... Uh, I could have been a contender, but probably not quite. But nevertheless, I say I, can, I think I can appreciate what those lads go through, and this is true for any professional sport, uh, any professional athlete, really, for, for the men and the women. The sacrifices they make that allow them to do what they do are massive, um, and and for every person who is keen to uh, to bag or badmouth an athlete. Really, there's a lack of reflection on what they have gone through to get where they are, and that's true for pretty much any professional level of any any any, any sport, really. Um, so I, I do appreciate, it. and I enjoy being around as much as you do, Milty. Um, you know, they're, they're they're good fun. Um, I like to think that I um have a persona which they feel comfortable with, um, and. I like to think that that's some of my longevity is testing to that really. Interesting there, picking up on, I think, listening 20 years in rugby league and 20 years as a partnership in a sport or working together, or as long as you two have at, at St. Helens, is just around people probably appreciate. And do you think 
people, whether that's the public or or even within clubs, the medics and physios are appreciated for probably what they go through with some of the sacrifices they have to make and the things they have to do to deliver, in everyone's words, I think we, we've alluded to in world-class care. Do you think people are appreciated as much as they should be in our profession as physios and medics or it's just taken for granted? That's a great question, man. Um, I certainly have never felt unappreciated, but I suspect, and this is true whenever you have, um, uh, uh, I think it's probably true for every job, really. I, I suspect that when you are dealing with people or need organisations that have needs, uh, the, the fact that you can meet them is what they actually want out of any situation. That's, to be fair, to be true for all of us, isn't it? Um, I don't think too closely about the man who I buy my paper in the shop from, um, but I'd notice if he wasn't there. And that's, that's really what I think we're very sure aim for. The truth is, of course, that, yeah, we all go and go massive sacrifice, both in time, in energy. Um, certainly none of us do it for, um, frankly, the money. Um, and true, that's true across pretty much all sports. I think if, obviously if you have the, the fortune to be involved with <clears throat> um, goodness, I'm doing Premiership football, maybe that's slightly different. But for those of us in rugby league, um, you know, it is not a rich sport and we wouldn't do it unless we got a great deal of personal job satisfaction out of it. So, but no, but so, I mean, I remember vividly, you know, in, in the early days, certainly when my family was a lot younger, that the sacrifices that our families make as well, you know, that allow us to do these things that we do. Um, I remember vividly either being away, for example, for that Challenge Cup weekends, which was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, <clears throat> the impact that would have on, on whoever's at home, you know, looking after the family. Um, so you know, everyone is involved and we all make those sacrifices. I think in our early days, because it's, we don't know any different, I think as we get older, more because we recognise that's what it takes to do, do the right thing. I, th- I think interestingly at the moment as well, there's there's also whether it's the appreciation or understanding of sort of how much scrutiny now is under sort of real-time decision-making in, in gameplay around especially concussion at the moment. But just in general, you know, you, you have to make some very important decisions quite quickly and, and not everyone might understand or appreciate that, you know, we don't always have the replays. You're on a field in front of X amount of people and... And you know the the pressures that come with that. Absolutely, and of course that's become ever more um, ever more pressing. Um, I know players are subject to armchair halfback uh, analysis over the weekend, but frankly, we are too these days. Um, and certainly, ever since the game has been televised, and that's true for you, Ben, and your uh, your arena now as it was when you were back in rugby league. Um, <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? I, I would be fascinated to sort of hear your take on, on whether you feel that is often the um, decided factor. I think we've all seen colleagues come and go. Um, and the ones who appear to do well and deal with it comfortably do seem to be ones who are capable of making that decision under pressure. Um, and sometimes that's because of... Uh, the intrusion of television cameras or everything else, but oftentimes it's it's under pressure from coaching staff. Um, you know, so uh, I've I've known I felt a lot more pressure. <clears throat> um, you know, at a 
on a wet Thursday night in Batley, looking after the under-18s there occasionally, than you do uh, in a grand final. Uh, if the coach is sort of screaming at you, why is that lad coming off and not so-and-so? Um, so I think we, we, we all find ways of, of dealing with that conflict. Some of it is intrinsic into who we are. I think some of it can be learned, but oftentimes it's very harsh. As, um, as you both know, obviously, I, I, I work on the, the uh, as faculty on the in-off course, the, uh, the, the, the qualification that allows us to take to the field of playing the crash game. And I often think a lot of, uh, of people coming through that course, new, uh, new staff, probably haven't really taken on board uh, what it will actually mean for them uh, and to have some sort of process by which they can make those decisions uh, comfortably. I think we're very fortunate Saints. Um, I think the, the larger teams have this fortune to be able to work as a team. I think our teamwork is is immeasurably better than it ever, ever has been before. And that certainly spreads the the, the um, decision-making load. Uh, and certainly, it certainly improved our, our level of care as well. Millsy, isn't it funny? Early doors, I think, maybe comes with experience. And Simon, you'll have seen as, as people pass through the MOF courses, to start with, it's just about passing. And then as you get more experience, it's actually about understanding how often you have to practice some of that stuff and the importance as, as you've alluded to of understanding who you work with how everyone operates what their roles are and then you start to enjoy it a bit more because you understand some of the intricate bits and pieces that come with it so uh i, I think that comes with sort of whether it's mastery or or experience or just going through the process that many times i'd agree man i think it's one of those things like the the, the, the doc alluded to then I think our our position at the club has been it's been a, a big evolution really of, of uh, it's been a significant period of time with with multiple people we've worked with and learned from uh, multiple coaches we've worked with, with and learned from as well but then also this consistency of staff where we've grown together and we've been willing to grow together and and to reflect on decisions that in the past might have been you know not intentionally but definitely not correct and then what you do is you reflect on that particular action and then you, you go back to the drawing board and you, and you look at how you can improve going forward so yeah it's, it's a it's a nice place to be it's a nice place to be when you think that you've you've got that team that are there together and they're working together as a team as well thanks word by spaniel i mean i think ben i'm sure you've you've felt this in clubs you've worked with in the past um saints does seem to have this um organizational um sort of structure whereby um, we've all been there a long time. We've all cut our teeth together. Um, you know, I think, what, what did we work at Millsy between Stockton and me and yourself? We've got something like 70 years of Super League experience or something ridiculous like that. Um, I believe so, Doc. Yeah. Um, and, and, but that's true for every level of staff at the club. You know, we obviously have a, um, many ex-players on the staff. Obviously, um, I've worked with Mike uh, Rush now for 20 years when he started as a, as a junior coach. Um, so we've all come through the ranks together, as it were. And I think that has been um, incredibly beneficial for all of us. Bilzi, I just wanted to pick up on a point you made about the reflection on um, errors. And that's been a very important, uh, as you say, evolution in how we have approached things in the past. <clears throat> um, we're getting much better at recognising um not even errors, but also sort of near-miss stuff that could be done better. Um, 
We've had some instances where we have been uh, pinged by the league for um, things we didn't do quite right. And we've gotten really good at adopting uh, it's like a sort of a root cause analysis process whereby we look in pretty forensic detail at every little aspect of that with the intention not of apportioning blame or, or pointing fingers, but rather as, yeah, what can we do a little bit better, a little bit better? And it's that incremental improvement in care that's been uh, has been really good to be a part of. So 19 to 20 years been involved with the club, with the sport. Um, what, what dry, and, and you've probably answered to some degree the question that I'm going to ask now, but with the sacrifices that you have to make, especially in your position with the with the full time role you do, and we'll touch a little bit on the on the family side of things as well, Doc, and and the amount of commitment that you've got there. Um, what drives you and inspires you to stay involved? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? it? Inevitably, it becomes such a part of your life that I can't really imagine life without it. And there have been many challenges over the years. I remember vividly thinking that um, when Daniel Anderson joined the club, when uh, Ian Millwood um, left the club, when Daniel came in halfway through that season, I was kind of under you know, the impression that, you know, he was going to bring in his own backroom staff and that would be me, Don and Dustin. So that would have been, I think, 2006. Um, I think since that time, I've gone through, I've gone through, that sounds awful. I've been uh, fortunate to be associated with um, let me see. It must be at least six or seven head coaches. Um, and as far as I'm aware, at no point have they asked Rushy to, to, to get rid of me and to bring somebody else in. Um, so I enjoy it. And I enjoy, um, I enjoy watching the rugby. I enjoy every sort of minute of every game. Um, you know, there are, there are days when we all sort of think, gosh, I'd rather be having a lion than, than, than stuck in a Colbert field. Um, but you, you, you say, I, I wouldn't quite do it for free, but I'd certainly carry on to it for as long as people will have me. It's interesting. You know, the interesting thing is, obviously, um, Ben, I know you're involved with Union now, and I certainly grew up as a, as a stalwart Union player. Um, uh, my first game of rugby league was actually St. Helens versus Parramatta in the 1997 World Club Challenge, believe it or not. Um, and these days, you have to pay me to watch Rugby Union. But Rugby League, I will sing its praises uh, until the day I die, really. Um, I think it is the, very much the, 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 the purest version of the sport. Um, and so, yeah, I, I enjoy watching it. Um, I enjoy being in the games. And, yes, it's nice to have the highlights, and we, we all uh, remember those sort of peak experience moments, don't we? Um, but I'm quite, quite just as happy watching, you know, uh, I'll be just happy watching Whitehaven versus Saints in the Challenge Cup next week, as it would be um, watching the grand final against Catalan last October. Doc, I've got a couple of things to try and debunk there. The first thing is you're an official convert then, aren't you, from Rugby Union to Rugby League? Yep, unapologetic, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and and um, the follow-up for that is, Doc, why? Why Why you mention, you just said a phrase then, you said it's probably the purest version of the sport so I want, I want you to try, I want to challenge you here to give me the reasons why. And for all those rugby union listeners out there as well, this is the reason why rugby league is a superior sport. <laughs> so when I was playing, um, 
back in the day. Um, I think it'd be fair to say that um, it was only just, I say, it was, it was on the cusp of becoming professional. Um, and there were there was room on every team for people of all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, and that was kind of accepted. That you'd have um, the, the uh, less physically fit, um, slightly larger props trundling around the field. Um, you'd have the, 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 the willowy um, wingers, uh, you know, out on the wing, not making sure the kit didn't get dirty. When I came to Botch Rugby League, what I saw was 13 peak athletes absolutely hurtling together uh, with these huge impacts. I thought the skill level, the basic skill set, was so much higher than I could see on an, on an average club rugby uniform. Um, and it was just exciting to watch. There was not a, there was not a, there was no downtime. Um, every minute contained something. Every second contained someone doing something with uh, with footwork, with with body movement, with ball skills that I had not seen before. You know, I remember watching um, people like uh, you know like Longy, like Sean Long, or Scully, um, or Kieran do things that I didn't think were you know possible. And certainly, done things I'd never seen on a rugby pitch. Um, I think these days, obviously, I think that, that gap is, is, is obviously marginal, if, if at all. Um, and I think the athletes in rugby in these days are, are, are interestingly, <clears throat> very similar to rugby league athletes. Obviously, you have the the, the, uh, the extremes uh, that work with the um, with the height and with the speed, whatever it might be. But I think as, as athletes, they're, of course, equally as good now. But I think in terms of the actual spectacle, I still think the rugby league is a better spectacle than rugby union. Um, I can watch a bit of Super 14 or Super 12, um, but I, I still struggle to watch the Premiership. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I say I think obviously there's opinion there. <clears throat> That's what I think, but I think uh, I think an average game of rugby league is still a better sporting spectacle than an average game of rugby. I can't, I can't comment, obviously, but uh, <laughs> that. I try to explain to to people as well. There's something about you know, I, I obviously was at Warrington for a little bit, but the locality of the game and the communities it represents and stuff that all adds to the feel of you know. I used to love coming to St Helens for for the big games, and I don't know how you put the words with it, but it's it's community it represents and its roots in 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 those communities still sort of feel present in the purity of probably what you're alluding to there, Simon. And I, yeah, I, there's those bits way. that I miss. You're absolutely right, Ben. So um, for my sins, I married a, a wonderful woman um, who is, an, again, an un unapologetic witness girl. Um, and she grew up on the terraces watching witness. She lived in the same close as Martin O'Fire. Um, I would speak to him on, on a regular basis. Because um, they were part of the community and still are, you know. Um, and and we, 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 for our sport that we're involved with, um, there are still lads who grew up next door to so and so. Uh, oh, yeah, Uncle So and so knows him because uh, he, he, he walks his dog on the same fields, are So they know each other, they're part of the communities. These are lads who grew up playing club rugby um, with a schoolmates. And it, it is a very, was, um, uh, people get quite hung up on the sort of the M62 corridor nature of our sport. 
Um, but that has a great deal of positives, uh, along with the potential negatives. Um, so, um, funny enough, my father, ex father, ex father, my, my father in law, who's unfortunately no longer with us, um, he was a, again another avid witness fan. He never really forgave me for working for Saints. He used to, uh, used to, used to rib me about it on a regular basis. Doc, I, I want to set the scene a little bit, Doc. So, obviously, you, you worked you worked within your, your normal day-to-day job. Um, you also did the stuff at St. Helens. And then you find out that you, you've already mentioned your lovely wife, Elaine, uh, falls pregnant for the third time with triplets. And then you, you, you're realising the fact that you're going to have five children, I believe, at the time, under the age of five. Um, yep. And then you had to create this life, really, of, of how you then still are successful in the facet of a father, a husband, and then also your professional life. Can you give us an insight into how you did that, what you've what you've you've done since then? How do you manage your time to make every area of your life still as successful as what it currently is? Yeah, so as we go back a stage further, <clears throat> so I mentioned my sort of early surgical experience, and I, and I grew up wanting to be a surgeon. I grew up wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was really really clear on that, and certainly went through. Um, the first five years of my career were spent on uh, surgical training rotations, doing orthopedic surgery, pediatric orthopedic surgery, plastic surgery, general surgery, a <clears throat> all of those um, job rotations with a view to being an orthopedic surgeon. Um, <clears throat> my first son, Cam, was born um, in, in 1999. Um, he was quite unwell as a child. Um, needed a lot of... Uh, he had something called a tracheosophageal fistula, which is where the, 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 the trachea, um, or rather the esophagus, actually empties out into the trachea rather than the stomach. So he had a, quite a serious surgery as, a, as, a, as an infant. He was eight hours old. And he had a rocky first year. Um, and certainly that gave me pause for thought because there was times when I found it very difficult to be in work the amount of hours I was doing at the time. This was back in the day before the sort of European working time directives, which meant that we were working an average of 75-hour weeks. Obviously, some were significantly more than that, some a little bit less. Um, <clears throat> and so I think for that, that sort of one, two-year period after Cam was born, I was starting just to, to question what, what it was that I actually wanted. Um, Harry was born in 2001, and it was... Um, during that year, when uh, Lane was pregnant with Harry, that I made the decision to jump sideways into general practice. <clears throat> that was with the view that it was a more family-friendly career, really. Um, ironically enough, I do more hours now than I ever did as a surgical uh, trainee. Um, but that was certainly what, what, what changed my mind. Um, and so I moved sideways onto a, a general practice rotation. Uh, and because it was that, <clears throat> it was actually the general practice rotation that led me to Saints. Um, so my first six-month training post was here at this practice. Um, one of the partners at the time was uh, a doctor called John Hughes, who was also the Saints doctor. Um, and had been for many, many successful years. <clears throat> John would tell fond tales of holding the Challenge Cup up with Bobby Goulding, people like that. Um, the 
the way I actually got into it was John was away on holiday, I think, for me. This was during the off season. And I think he said, listen, Simon, do you mind just um, holding the fort while I'm away for a week? Um, you won't have to do anything very much. Um, and so it turned out. And, and, and I think I had to go down to the club once. <clears throat> so I think, um, I don't know if you remember Sonny Nickel. Uh, so I think Sonny had a little bit of a, a, a perhaps a, a cold or a chest or something of that nature. And I remember having to examine Sonny. Uh, and if you think any of the players these days are big, go and have a look at how Sonny was in his, in his prime. <laughs> Absolute man mountain. Um, <clears throat> and John said, yeah, well, thanks for that. Sorry, that was a, thanks for doing that. I said, listen, do you mind if I start coming along? And so I started coming along and coming to games with him. Ended up in the academy there for that 2002 season. Three games. Um, and then the John left the club and I, and, I, and I took over. I remember that phone call from Cal Coslett uh, when he asked whether I'd be interested in, in taking the role on. Um, <clears throat> so that led me to sort of general practice. Um, and it's, 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 it's interesting. It's worthwhile sort of talking about what the role of a club doctor is um, in professional sport. And... I think over the years, <clears throat> that's changed. I think these days, there is a much higher percentage of uh, sports and exercise medicine specialists. But I still maintain that a great deal of what we, what I do as a, as a club doctor is actually just really good general practice. I look after people. They happen to play rugby, <clears throat> but for the most part, I'm looking after them with a fairly sort of holistic um, standpoint, really. Yes, the coughs and colds and everything else, but also the uh, the, the sick kids, the, 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 the problems that their the partners may have, all of those things are equally as important. And of course, an awful lot of liaison, which is what, what I do here day in, day out. Um, it also gives you a great ability to talk to everyone within that sort of sporting environment, be they coach, player, or chief exec. Um, so I think it's been really, really beneficial. And I think the the other wonderful freedom that general practice gives you is there's a much um, uh, more accepting appreciation of the sort of portfolio career. Um, the ability to do other things is, is almost uh, expected at times and very healthy for you as well. Um, doing a little bit of something different is as good as a, as good as a rest often. Doctor, so we travelled through from the initial part of career into the your two children making a decision to, to move into general practitioner before we move on to you know the next part of your life which was which was a big part of your life and and and, and more children can we just go back <laughs> and just ask and i know this is tough this but do you have any regrets in regards to the career path that you took do you do you ever look back and and think you know what i would have liked to shot at seeing what i could do in orthopedic surgery what i miss <clears throat> is the cutting um so um, I'm sure people like Len or, or Rob or Mike Hayden wouldn't mind me saying that, you know, the, 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 the best part of their working week is, is the part when they're in an operating theatre with a, a drill or sword knife. Um, and for me, that was, that was the wonderful part of it. Um, back when I was a junior, it was at a time when it was both expected um, and demanded <clears throat> that as a junior you would be you would be operating as much as the seniors, and so I was very very fortunate enough to be allowed to do a great deal of operating, which frankly these days as a junior surgeon you, you just don't get the opportunity to do. Also working at one of the, of the sort of the DGH, the district general hospitals, rather than the big sort of um, university hospitals, 
again, much more opportunity to do a great deal of, uh, of cutting. Um, and so I was doing as, a, as, a, as an SHO, is what they were back then, so senior house officer. So, you know, two, three, four years out of, out of medical school, I was doing, you know, um, dynamic hip screws for fractured hips. I was, um, you know, pulling wrists and, and putting KYs in, all sorts of uh, interesting stuff, which I suspect most people don't quite get the opportunity quite as early as I did at the time. So I still miss that. And then, yeah, there were plenty of times when, um, when I think, gosh, yeah, that'd be nice to do. Um, but I certainly don't have any regrets. Um, but occasionally I'd like to, uh, yeah, <laughs> a bit more cutting. The, the paradox now is, Doc, is that you, you miss cutting, but now you're considered probably, well, the best stitch man I have ever seen in my life. So now you prefer stitching than cutting, which is fantastic. Well, not prefer, but you are definitely an unbelievable stitcher. Well, Ben's probably not heard the stories about why that is the case. So I think I mentioned it earlier on. So <clears throat> as, a, as, a, as a trainee surgeon, you go through various rotations of specialties, six-month jobs at a time. And, and your job as a junior was to do what you were told, really. Um, so I did six months of plastic surgery. Now, plastic surgeons, um, for the most part, are not really what people think they are. So yes, the, the, the cosmetic surgery has a, has a part to play, but for the most part, they're, they're uh, skin surgeons um, and doing skin surgery in various sort of iterations, be that reconstructive surgery or be that sort of skin lesions, which require sort of flap covering all those sort of clever things that they do. Uh, they are incredibly exacting, methodical, uh, uh, detail-orientated people. And so <clears throat> I went for a couple of consultants um, who I certainly won't name names. But what they would do, they would have you do the minor surgery list um, uh, or perhaps uh, be closing up after one of the larger operations. Um, and they would peer over your shoulder for half an hour while you meticulously put in these beautiful little sutures with perfect skin tension and perfect skin opposition and all those sort of things. And then if they weren't happy, they'd take out a pair of scissors and go, nope, try that again. Uh, whilst the anaesthetist at the end groaned inwardly uh, while you were forced to do uh, uh, a whole lot of stitches again. And, and so um, it's always one of those things I do pride myself on. Um, much to the annoyance and chagrin of certain players who quite like scars occasionally, because of course it, it boosts their, uh, their industrial injuries claims. I remember one player in particular being very upset that I'd stitched him far too effectively on his face a number of times, uh, so as to almost not leave a mark. Uh, again, I won't know names, but I'm sure he'll know who we were talking about. <laughs> Name him, Doc. Name him, Doc. I'm only joking, Doc, really, but I'd love to. I love to. <laughs> uh, well, so we, we skip forward. I think it was probably like 2003, Doc, um, and then the triplets arrive. Yeah. And then yeah, what, what was the impact then on, on, on life? It's one of those amazing um, things that people still, sort of people, whose, people's jaws drop when they still sort of hear about it, really. Yeah. So obviously we had the two older boys, Cam and Harry, <clears throat> um, and when we were trying for a third, not for very long, but, but there we go. Um, and then got pregnant. Because it was our third pregnancy, we were very laid back and blasé. Obviously, Lane was a nurse at the time. She was still... Um, working uh, on, um, I think at that point she was working in primary care as well. Um, but never quite got around to booking a scan. Um, and so we sort of left it and left it and left it until about sort of 12 weeks. Now, I'm not sure, Ben, you've, had, you've ever met Elaine. Um, I'm sure she won't mind me saying she's not the tallest of people. 
Um, you know, if she has her heels on, uh, she'll just get just scrape above five foot tall. Um, and it was only when she was about 12 weeks and we thought, gosh, I can actually see your bump from behind now that we thought we probably ought to get a scan done. Um, so we, 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 we put a lot to Holton Hospital and uh, on a nice summer's day, or early spring day, I think it was, <clears throat> and we had the scan. Um, we had the scan and uh, I was with her at the time. So I'm taking a, a quick hour out of work to sort of scoot down to Holton for the scan. And at one point, the, the radiographer um, stopped and she went, oh, goodness, and uh, I just need to go and get the console. And so <clears throat> Elaine quite reasonably panicked. What's going on? Now, having a little bit of obstetrics and gynecology before, I'd actually seen the scan, and I thought I could see two. And so I said, listen, don't worry. Don't worry. It'll be fine. Um, everything's fine. And the consultant came in, and he, he, he put the probe on a lane and, uh, and scanned and scanned and then scanned some more. And they said, yep, there's definitely three there. And that was that sort of jaw-dropping moment that, realization of life was never quite going to be the same again. Um, and so I remember sitting on the bank outside of Holton Hospital with Elaine, and we just sat there for half an hour on what happens now. Because um, they just sent us on our way in the knowledge that, yeah, we were having triplets. Um, it was a tough time, very tough time. <clears throat> Elaine was really quite well for some of that time. Um, she was eventually admitted to hospital, uh, the women's hospital, 20, either 20 weeks or 21 weeks, and spent the next three months in the women's hospital in Liverpool. Um, she went into labour several times, had to have that labour arrested because, of course, you know, at that age and that sort of size, there was a fair chance of uh, one or two not surviving. Um, and so it was a really tough time. I was obviously still having to work each day. Um, and, uh, you know, we had massive input from both Elaine and my mum. And frankly, we couldn't have, couldn't have done it without their help because, of course, we had a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old at the time. Cam was just starting school. Harry was obviously going to nursery uh, with me working, you know, 11-hour, 12-hour days in between. So it was a tough time. But... <clears throat> Um, it all turned out very, very well. They were all born um, fit and healthy, uh, with no major problems. And after a couple of weeks in the in Skibu at uh, the women's, initially the women's, then at Worcester, um, they all came home. And that's when the <laughs> that's when the real hard work started. Um, we used to have a, a conveyor belt system, pretty much. <clears throat> of uh, well, we used to do shifts, so. Elaine would do the day shift um, while I was at work. I'd come home sort of half, six, seven o'clock, at which point she would go to bed. I'd then do the, the evening shift until about sort of two in the morning, uh, at which point she would get up, come downstairs and uh, take over, and I'd leave for work at seven o'clock the next morning. And we did that again and again and again, every day merging into the next. Um, and we were very good at it, but we don't remember a great deal about it. An amazing story, Doc, because I've heard that about probably no less than 10 times. But I've got to say, every time you hear it, you just send shivers down your spine thinking. I mean, obviously, Doc, firstly, um, unbelievably powerful story. And thanks for sharing with with sort of 
Elaine's labour and, and what happened at the tail end of that. That's that's massively powerful. And and the other thing is as well that I was very fortunate and privileged to be invited to is I came along to your birthday and it was a joint birthday party for both yourself and the triplets reaching the age of 18. So to see them fit, healthy and, and how they were then and, and think about what potentially you went through at that time. Um, you must be a very proud man and so must have learned. So unbelievably well done to you guys and, and your parents and everything else for giving you support through that period. Um, I just want to... I'd like to take some credit, Melzi, but frankly, because there are five of them, we have adopted very much a laissez-faire attitude to parenting. <laughs> and it's really much more of a testament to the the the, the, the uh, to their, their talents as children than it is as ours as parents. Uh, because no matter how good you are a parent, keeping close tabs on five is pretty difficult. Doc, I've done that with three. Does that does that make me completely inadequate as a parent? I don't know. Um, but yeah, we we we're looking at. I want to touch on some of the some of the strategies that I know that you shared with me on on what's what you've sort of described it as as a reset, and you've also described it as as the way in which you sort of have time for yourself. Um, and, and just to. I'll, I'd like for you to go through for, for us and also for the listeners. What what does a, a an average day look like for you? What what time do you get up? What do you fill your day with that helps you manage the stress and strain of an unbelievably challenging job when you're in control of someone's health, welfare, and and and, and future medical care, and then also do the things around it for your family and do the things around it for ourselves at the club. So if you just go through like what does a, a waking day look okay. like for you? So, as I say, we've talked about this quite a lot over the years, and, and and the way I survive is I have a fairly regimented life um, with parts of it which um, which help for my sort of resilience, really, um, and they've been very carefully uh, nurtured and created and uh, and refined, I suppose, and and that's allowed me to stay relatively fit and healthy. Um, uh, both uh, psychologically and, and, and physically. Um, so, an average day. <clears throat> so, I get up each morning at uh, 4.05. Um, the 05 is significant. And that hasn't changed in, in many, many years. Um, I go to bed at 10 o'clock, uh, well, 10.05 to be precise. Uh, so, I have exactly six hours sleep every single night. Um, if I have five hours, 55 minutes, not so good. If I have six hours and five minutes, a bit of a lie. Um, but I'm really, really regimented about that. And the reason for that is that allows me then to fit in the other things that I need to do to sort of stay healthy. So, yeah, I get up at four, to five past four. Um, I have a cold shower every morning, um, which people sort of uh, shake their head up, but it's certainly a, a bit of an adrenaline burst first thing in the morning. Um, and then I have a cup of coffee read the news, and then I meditate for 30 or 40 minutes every single morning. That started, goodness, um, yeah, well, fun enough, it started about 20 years ago. Um, I'll, I'll break away just to talk a little bit about that. So <clears throat> at the time when I was making those career changes that we spoke about, it, it was a, a difficult time for me. There was a lot going on in my life. Um, I was making these career changes. I had a young family, uh, and I was struggling. Um, Mentally, really, and and so I was really casting around for ways in which I could help myself deal with all the things that were going on. Um, 
and after various um, uh, trial and error periods of looking at things like yoga or tai chi or various sort of sort of things, that, um, I, I came across meditation um, and started really sort of yeah playing around with it, trying it out as a, as a with a slightly sort of rugby um, connection there. The first time I ever tried it was sat on the floor of a hotel room in Perpignan. Um, so Saints played what was then UTC <clears throat> in the Challenge Cup. Um, I think that must, that must have been 2003, I guess. And I remember taking a tiny little book with me um, on the trip and saying, right, let's, let's give this a try. So that was the first time I ever, ever sat down and... Uh, uh, was alone with my thoughts for over a time. And over the years, that's obviously progressed and, and developed, <clears throat> and it's become a very much an integral part of my life. Um, as you talked about the sort of reset bits, um, over the years I've become ever more interested in, 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 in Buddhism and what that means and that sort of philosophy of life. <clears throat> um, from time to time, I've gone on various uh, silent retreats for a number of days. Um, to have a bit more intensive practice at that, which has been a fascinating experience. If you get the opportunity to do that, I wholeheartedly recommend it to people. Not easy to do to sit alone with your thoughts for for, for three days. Um, so, yep, so I do that each morning. Um, and then I'm in work, I probably leave for work about sort of uh, about 20 to 6, in work for about quarter past 6 each day. That gives me a chance to this is the old surgery, really. A chance to do all the, the boring paperwork bits of the day before the real work gets started. That was always the surgical way. <clears throat> Come in, see all the, uh, all, do all your ward rounds and stuff that you, so that you can spend all day operating. And that's never really left me, to be honest. Um, for the most part, I'm full-time here at practice. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm from 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm calling patients and seeing patients, visiting, doing home visits, um, I manage this place as well, so a lot of my day is spent um, dealing with the, 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 the organisational aspects of this place. Same in the afternoon. Um, and normally I get home for about 7 o'clock in the evening. Um, that's obviously a long day, but for, you know, certainly when the, the children were young and Elaine was on her own, frankly, at home, that was a big ask that I was um, still able to do that. So I'm very grateful for that, really. She's been always has been and, and, and always will be a the, the rock behind uh, behind me that allows me to do what I do. Um, then, obviously, evening times are spent with the family. Um, I still train regularly. Um, that's the other part of my therapy, if you like. Uh, so, <laughs> I have a a whole lot of weights in the garage, and every other day I'll go and throw those around. Um, I think it was a, what an artist say, I lift things up and I put them down again, um, again and again. And so that's it. That's it. Um, and that's it. Uh, I finish my day by 10 o'clock. My head hits the pillow at 10.05, ready to get up in six hours' time. Doc, just to set the scene as well for anyone that has watched the uh, documentary program Pumping Iron. That is pretty much what Doc's gym's like, um, full of sweat, grit, blood, and tears. And uh, if you ever see Doc in person, uh, you will understand why the gym's like that and 
why is he, he he's in the shape that he's in. So I love so, the fact that you've shared your training. <laughs> so with his dog. Yeah, I'll have to sort of share a picture perhaps on, on, on the thumbnail of my Spit and Sawdust gym, which is a, a scaffold uh, scaffold pole cage uh, with the base in. Believe it or not, I actually still have some of the weight plates that I, would, I bought of a friend of mine, uh, um, I call Steve Higginson, who sold me his weight set because he wasn't interested when I was 14. And I still have some of the weight, the plates from that set. From that set. So it's, it's always been a, a part of my life. And people often, often make fun of me and say, why are you still doing that? And it's because I enjoy it. Um, and always have had. Doc, I don't know if that means that you're a little bit tight in regards to not actually, you know, spend a bit more money on your gym, or if those weights are just ridiculously robust, so they just lasted the well, test the of thing, time. See, so the great thing about iron is it never it never wears out. Really. <laughs> There's a great quote um, by a, an American um, American sort of rock rock singer, a guy called Henry Rollins. If you come across him, other name rings about. And he said, uh, he said, friends may come and friends may go, but 200 pounds will always be 200 pounds. The iron will always kick it to you wheel. (laughs) (laughs) It keeps me very grounded. Doc, I've got a a question on the, I mean, we've had multiple conversations about this, so I'll I'll very briefly just talk through it. You're a very deliberate and, and avid reader. I think a question that I've got for you is that I've not actually asked before is why do you read? What's the reason why you read? So I read because I've always read. So as a, as a kid, I was always stuck in a book. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family where that was valued and encouraged. Um, and, and I grew up reading, you know, a book a week or whatever it might have been since since you know, since primary school. Um, so, so I've kind of always done it. Over the years, um, I've made, I've, I've attempted to try and maintain that. It's nowhere near as much as I used to, but nevertheless, uh, there's, there's, there's an enjoyment in getting that. And it, it, there's, there's a there's both a mental and a and a physical tactile satisfaction and, and, and enjoyment in reading books. I've, 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 I've dabbled with Kindle in the past, but I still buy physical books. Um, I often deliberately buy the used version off of Amazon um, because that has that sort of slightly thumbed feel. Uh, and I'm not too anxious about reading. I like folding over pages. I like, um, I like feeling. In terms of what I read, it's very eclectic. Um, so I read, what do I read? I read? I read a lot of science fiction. Um, I read a lot of sort of, uh, uh, yeah, conceptual ideas type of books. So sort of the Malcolm Gladwell's or the Ryan Holiday's, that type of thing. Um, occasionally dabble with medicine, but not a lot, to be honest. <laughs> because I, I, I like to read what I like to read. Um, and so it's, it's changed over the years what I read, but nevertheless, it's still that sort of um, yeah, enjoyment of disappearing into a book. I, I've got a, a quick question as well. Is 
it's around that 05, 605, 1005. Yeah. What is, is there any any theory or or anything behind that, or is it just so, it is what it is? Um, that's the sort of way about what I'm like, but, but I, uh, uh, there's always a rationale behind what I do. Um, whether it's a, a particularly sensible one or not is, is up for discussion. Um, so what I, since my early days as a, as a surgeon, when we used to be on call, uh, I've never been a particularly good sleeper. Um, and so we used to get by on ridiculously small amounts of sleep. And so over the years, because I wanted to increase the opportunity of hours in the day, as it were, has to be, I was genuinely interested in what was the what was the, the optimal amount of time for me to sleep. Um, there's sort of a, a bit of research out there, isn't there, on sort of sleep cycles and um, uh, how many of those we go through at, at night. Um, at the time when I was looking into it, it was felt to be around about 90 minutes. And so what I determined to do was to gradually recre- decrease the amount of time I slept in five-minute increments over the course of, I don't know, six months, 12 months, whatever the heck it was, until I found whatever the optimal amount of time was to sleep. I'm very aware that as I'm saying this, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Um, But as I say, with six hours, I think I function pretty well. Um, And let's say I have a a lie-in for an hour on the weekend, maybe get as far as sort of five or six o'clock. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm still, still do. But that allows me then to do all those other things that I talked about, um, be that training, be that um, the meditation. Uh, it allows me to sort of put those things into my day as well. I, 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 I love the logic. I, I'm not sure I want to start decreasing how much I sleep, though. I think I'm the other way. I need to start increasing it. But uh, just, just listening, listening to you talk, and obviously Millsy knows you in a lot more depth than I do, but. How important, in your opinion, is is being a rounded person? We we see lots of aspiring, you know, sports medics, physios, doctors. How important is is the all the bits and pieces that go round it to one maintaining probably a positive mental health space, but but secondly to to being the practitioner that you are. That's again, a brilliant question. So. Yeah, I'm a big believer in, um, you've heard of the sort of concept of sort of Renaissance man um, and, and sort of the time's gone past, the sort of the, um, the, the gentleman scientists who dabbled a little bit in science, a little bit in travel and all that sort of thing. So I've always kind of been like that. <clears throat> um, interesting aside from you, but so, um, back when I was a, a, a young man, I was actually very, quite a good accomplishment, musician, believe it or not. Um, I know you wouldn't think of it to look at me now, um, but I was grade seven clarinet and grade five saxophone, and uh, I used to sing in the county choir, um, again, believe it or not. And so I've always had lots of different sort of strings to my bow. I think as a as clinicians, I think I, I, I will proudly defend the generalist um, for what they are. I think... As medicine has progressed over the years, we are guilty of becoming ever more specialised, which I've no doubt improves care in that specific area. However, 
in the kind of environments that you and I work in, I think being able to be a journalist is incredibly powerful place to be. This is my point about <clears throat> I made before about the sort of the um, sports and exercise medicine, for example. Um, they have skills which I will never possess, and I think they have huge value within large team environments. But I think the role, for example, of a club doctor, or indeed uh, head of medicine like you guys are, um, actually benefits from that much more rounded kind of person um, that allows you to see the things that the specialist doesn't. Um, you know, I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that I know uh, a, a little bit about lots and lots. Um, specialists know lots and lots about a little bit. And I think there's definitely still value in that, um, particularly in this world of hyper-specialised uh, medicine. I'd agree as well. Like I think that's just something that <clears throat> in in our experiences, especially over the last two years, um, and with the impact of COVID, I think we've we've gone from I'm sure you've heard me use this term before, a systems of plenty, where we've had a lot of people doing a lot of small things to then having a, a system of famine where we've depended upon very few people doing a lot of things. And and I think that's been challenging but it's also been beneficial to actually expand our, our skills and be able to do different um, jobs within the organisation. Um, so I 100% agree with the the, the, the specialised generalist or the general specialist and that mixture of a little bit of knowledge in certain areas that are a little bit more, but then having an expansion of knowledge as a fundamental underneath it is really important in what we do. Um, I'm, I'm really aware, Doc, that... We've kept you on here for a long period of time. And at the risk of not trying to mess up too much with your daily routine, I'm just going to close by just asking, what does the future look like for you? And you can take that question in whichever direction you'd like to. Um, so I'm both happy and content in my professional life, in my home life, and my family life. Um, I certainly have achieved everything I could possibly want to achieve in both aspects of my, my career, really. You know, I was, I was looking at the stats before, you know, I was in, you're probably aware of this. You know, I've been lucky enough to be involved in the Saints at a time when we had, and I had to count them up, um, 11 Super League Grand Finals, six of which we won, six Challenge Cup finals, five of which won, uh, four World Club challenges, with only one win, unfortunately. And of course, been involved with the World Cup as well. So I really don't feel the need to achieve, I suppose, anything else, which is a really good feeling to have because it means I, I'm comfortable um, with keeping on doing what I'm doing. As I feel incredibly privileged to be involved with a club like Saints. Um, and, and, and just enjoy being in that environment. Um, I think it's a wonderful uh, club and what I'm very proud of the years to be associated with. Um, in professional life in, in general practice, I'm actually pulling back a little bit. I want to see the hats I wear. Really to sort of take more time to be with the practice. Um, uh, to, there's a, a bit of change in the landscape of the NHS at the moment. Uh, and that's sort of helped with that, really. Um, 
in my family life, I say the kids are getting older now. I'm certain they're, they're, they're starting to go off and do their own things. And I've had the wonderful opportunity over the last 12 months in particular to, you know, I was going to say rekindle, um, re-explore my relationship with Lane, which has been wonderful. Believe it or not, we went on our, um, in, in November of last year, Elaine and I went to Tunisia for a week. Um, and believe it or not, in 25 years, that was the first time we'd ever been on a holiday, just the two of us. Uh, and so being able to sort of, um, you know, get, get, um, yeah, be in touch with those a little bit more has been wonderful as well. So in terms of what the future holds, I have no intention of changing anything. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy being who I am. I enjoy uh, the people, um, all of the people who are in my life. Um, but that's against the backdrop of feeling that, yeah, there's nothing left to, nothing left to prove, nothing left to, <laughs> to aspire to, which is quite liberating. Doc, I love it. I love the like the sort of the time you spent with us talking to us here. Obviously, we've known each other for a long time, but I think you've exposed things in there um, in, in such a um, a succinct way that that was it was a pleasure to listen to you, and, and I really appreciate your time. I think from from my perspective as well that that balance that you've sort of paused all the way through with this logical approach to life, but also this passion that you've got for what you do for in every element of your life, whether it be at home or whether it be at work, you've got a real true passion that's that's palpable when you go through your answers to, to both myself and Sterlo. And I can tell like our, our involvements and what we do as a job, we just genuinely care about what we do and how we go about our business. And, and again, that's come through in abundance in the, in, the th- in the stuff that you've gone through. So personally, from my perspective, thank you so much for coming on. I knew you were nervous. We had the conversation with, but... You didn't need to be nervous. You've been an absolutely fantastic guest and um, I really appreciate you coming on sharing, mate. Well, thank you to both of you. You've been, um, <clears throat> you've been very indulgent in, in, in listening to me uh, speak. Um, it's rare that I get uh, such uninterrupted attention <laughs> as that. And so I, I, I do appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks very much from this end. It's, it's been nice sort of picking up on the balance of relationship you two have, have gotten as a working partnership in Super League, one that sort of exudes world-class. So anyone that's interested in, in how that looks, I, you know, I can, I can vouch for, for going up to St. Helens or getting in touch around that. And it's, it's lovely just to, to see how important the person piece is around some of these roles and, and responsibilities that we see in sport. And, and it's, it's been a privilege. I, I hope one day I might get a chance to, Come and pump some iron with you, mate, in uh, in the garage because I, I know Millsy won't for sure. You, you'd always be welcome in the, in the garage, Jim. Amazing. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that one as much as we did. Um, please be sure to uh, jump onto our socials to review today's episode and any others, or go to our website www.thephysiospill.com.